If you have your Bibles or your devices, go ahead, open those up, turn them on, and I'm going to have you turn to uh, a little book in the New Testament. It's a letter to the Hebrews. So turn with me to Hebrews, and we're going to be in uh, chapter 10. But it kind of laid this out intentionally to... uh, it's kind of like a little, we're going to follow a little rabbit trail today, but it's planned, so it's okay. Uh, <clears throat> we have been in a series on Daniel since the middle of summer with a, a week or two here and there, uh, focusing on something different. Um, and we finished that up, our chapter study anyway, last week, focusing on uh, chapters 11 and 12. Um, today, I, I want to I highlight something that I noticed in the book of Daniel uh, in all of the weeks that I was studying it that I thought was just absolutely stunning. Um, and this week and next week and uh, Thanksgiving weekend, I want to focus our collective attention on what it means to be the church, or what are some pictures of what being the church uh, in our community uh, looks like. So today, I'm going to kick that off. Uh, Next week, Pastor Trent will be preaching, uh, and we'll turn our attention um, to uh, a a huge need in our region, in our state, in our own community on foster care, and we'll have um, an emphasis on an Orphan Sunday next week, and Pastor Trent will be uh, leading that. Uh, and then Thanksgiving weekend, uh, Kevin Kerfman's going to share a message, and he and Julie are uh, off RVing, and they are going around the country to various places uh, here and there, working on uh, various missions projects. And it's, uh, it's another way that you can be the church, and so he's going to share a little bit about what that looks like. But if, if you, uh, you want to turn with me, you can. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read a couple verses from uh, Daniel. And so in Daniel chapter 9, and, and these three are, uh, the three verses that I want to share with you are, they basically say the same thing. They describe Daniel in the same way. And <clears throat> usually when you come across phrases in Scripture that are repeated or say the same thing, that should be a little flag for us to, to get our attention. Like, oh, God's trying to get our attention on something. He's trying to teach us something here. He's trying to share something with us here. And if it's repeated, it's probably important. You know, I don't always get it the first time. So in this case, God had to give it to us three times. Uh, in Daniel chapter 9 and verse 23... Remember, Daniel had been praying, and this angel came to him and said, As soon as you began to pray, a word went out, which I have come to tell you, for this phrase, for you are highly esteemed. So Daniel is described as being highly esteemed there in chapter 9, verse 23, and If you flip over to chapter 10, uh, verse 10, 
Daniel is having another, or he's in this vision, and um, the angel approaches him, emissary of God, mouthpiece of God, okay? And, and so he is flat on his face on the ground in awe and wonder and probably fear. And he says, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. In verse 11, he said, Daniel, you who are highly esteemed. Hmm. There it is again. And then if you go down a few verses later, same episode, verse 18, again, the one who looked like a man touched me and gave me strength. Do not be afraid, you who are highly esteemed. That's stunning to me. Because all throughout the pages of Scripture, the people of God are taught to esteem God, right? To revere Him, to exalt His name. Most worship gatherings, when we gather, we have a call to worship where we begin what we're doing by exalting God's name, by speaking out loud the purpose for which we gather. So we are esteeming God, in a sense. But there are three verses in Daniel that says that God esteems a person. Not just esteems, but highly esteems. There's no other place, there's no other person in Scripture who these words are attributed to. Not Abraham, not Isaac, not Jacob, not Moses, not Joshua, not when you get into the New Testament, not Peter, not John the Baptist, not Paul, Daniel, out of all of the characters in Scripture, as described as being highly esteemed. And when you look at the uh, original language, the, the Hebrew, uh, it, it suggests, or the, the high, being highly esteemed as being highly admired, highly respected, uh, a precious treasure, desirable. And I was one, I was thinking, what attributes of a person, or what things might we need to pay attention to in Daniel's life if we were to aspire to having God say to us, to you, to this church, you are highly esteemed. And there are three things that, that I noticed. There, there certainly could be more. But the first thing that I noticed about Daniel's life is that he was a person who was resolute in his convictions. If you remember, as a young teen, he was uprooted from his homeland, taken into exile into the king's service in Babylon. And their program of indoctrination of 
their, their, their plan to make these young Jewish boys into young Babylonian men. Uh, they sent them to school. They, you know, they had them eat off the king's table and gave them new names and all sorts of things. But in Daniel chapter 1, I think it's verse 8, <clears throat> it said, but Daniel was resolved. In other words, he valued his upbringing and the religion that he learned. He had cultivated a, a relationship already with, with Yahweh God, and he recognized that in serving Yahweh that that called him to a certain way of, of living, um, certain ways to think, ways to behave, ways to eat, ways to treat other people. And he had given his life as a young person to that way of living that was lined out in the scriptures that he had been taught. So now here's this young teen, impressionable, in Babylon, a land of many riches, and in many ways he stepped into something that probably was very overwhelming. And certainly uh, he was at a point in life that he could have been easily influenced to let go of all the convictions that he once had and just adopt a new way of living. The easiest way to stay alive is probably to do what they say. And this is, man, this is a nice life over here. But in Daniel 1.8 it says, but Daniel was resolved. He allowed himself to participate in the education and some things, but remember he, he kept himself apart by refusing to eat what the king offered to feed him. And we talked about this weeks ago, that to be resolved in character, Daniel had pre-decided things that he was going to do and things that he wasn't going to do. And we talked in this environment right here that, that we have that same opportunity. When we leave this place uh, every Sunday morning, when you leave your house in the morning, uh, you go out into the world and you're confronted with all sorts of situations, many of which will tempt you to um, forget about the convictions that you might have in a good solid moment of personal study in, in the Word or, or prayer. But once you get out and, and you know, life just kind of gets right in your face, <clears throat> it can be really tempting. And so Daniel, when we, when we read about Daniel's character, we learn that he was resolved in his convictions, and he stuck with them when it was easy to do so and when it wasn't so easy to do so. He had pre-decided his way of behaving. So that's one thing. Daniel was resolute in his convictions. A second thing that I, that I noticed was that Daniel honored the people in authority in his life. And if you recall from the book of Daniel, he served under some very wicked men. He served under some people who were just bent 
on doing evil at every turn. Daniel was confronted with situations and with people on a regular basis that totally undermined the God in whom he served. And in many cases, or several cases that we know of, uh, took, uh, took premeditated action to eliminate Yahweh from uh, the public presence, right? Tried to write out, you can't pray to Yahweh, you, only, you can only pray to the king. And through all of that, we never once find Daniel complaining about a person who is in authority over him. Not once. There's not a critique, there's not a criticism, there's not a negative, uh, uncharitable word that Daniel speaks of somebody who is in authority over them. Not when he is in the presence of these people, and not when he is off on his own in the privacy of, of another place or his own home. Not once does he ever undermine their authority. Now, when I'm thinking about that, whew, that's hard to do, isn't it? Because lots of times, you know, we, we all have a boss. And when you have a boss and you have an opinion, sometimes your opinion is different than your boss. Am I, am I the only one? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> I know better, you bunch of liars. <laughs> <clears throat> And when your opinion is different, when you think your way is better than the boss's way, sometimes we have a way of talking about it behind their backs. It's the, you know, the chatter around the office. It happens around you know, dinner tables and, and all sorts of other places. Like, you know, I really wish they would just pay attention and listen to me. And it's easy in those moments to undermine authority and credibility by the words that we speak. Not once ever does, does Daniel do that. See, it's easy to, for us to submit to people who we like and who we respect and who we think are really honestly trying to take um, the ship, if you will, in, steer it in the right direction. It's, it's easy to honor and serve under those people. See, Daniel... In, from, from verse 1 of chapter 1 all the way to the close of chapter 12, Daniel is found to be a loyal person. He's found to be a loyal uh, employee. He is found to be a loyal advisor. Not once in any of those situations where he might have felt like he was uh, being picked on in particular, not once did he uh, go to the king and give him only half the information. He gave him the full story. He was honest all of the time. Daniel was, was a loyal person. He honored people in authority. And I know this always begs the question, when people of faith go out into the working world, is uh, how do I submit to people over me and still honor God. Sometimes when you're out in the working world, 
you'll be faced with times when people in authority over you ask you to do things that, uh, that challenge your faith, number one, but sometimes would, if you were to follow their instructions, would cause you to sin or to bend on a conviction that you have. And so when we put, you know, number one, Daniel was resolute in his convictions, and then we put as number two that he honored people in authority. Well, sometimes the people in authority ask us to do things that cause us to compromise on number one. So how do we, how do we deal with that? So this actually is a little bit of a rabbit trail, <clears throat> not the one that I was intending. But, uh, so this one is totally free, okay? Uh, how do I submit to people in authority over me and still be able to submit to God? And, and I would say, pastorally speaking, that uh, be resolute to your conviction, your convictions when it comes to matters of integrity and sin issues. That, that's an okay time to be resolute in your convictions. But when it comes to matters of style or personal preference or just you have different ideas than people over you, those sorts of things that you might put in like a non-essential kind of a category, the things that, you know, we make them up to be really huge things in our mind, but in the grand scheme of things, you know what, they are put in a position of authority over us for a reason, and you may really think that your idea is way better than the one that they're asking you to use at this particular moment, but that's the time that I think that we honor their authority. And your, your idea actually may be better, but in those moments, maybe we should remember Daniel and how he honored people who were in place over him. And the third thing that I noticed about Daniel, and this is the one that we'll focus on kind of for the rest of this morning, is, is that Daniel was faithful to the end. He was a faithful person. He remained, if you remember, at the end of chapter 1. It said that he remained until the time of Cyrus. I think we talked about this just briefly. It's often overlooked in chapter 1, but the very last verse says that, that Daniel, from the time that he left Judah and landed in Babylon, uh, at the end of chapter 1 it says, and, and he remained there until the time of Cyrus. Well, that's like eight decades. It's like 80 years that this man lived away from his homeland in exile in service to a pagan king. And if, you know, you can go back and look, I think it's about eight different kings that Daniel served under. So he certainly would have had plenty of opportunity to be unfaithful. But for each king that he served, he was loyal and he was faithful to them. And I know being faithful, it's that's hard work sometimes when we're challenged, when it's difficult, and sometimes being faithful isn't always the, the popular option. 
doesn't bring you a lot of notoriety sometimes to be the, the faithful follower, kind of go under the radar occasionally. Uh, the Bible, I mean, if, you re- if you read on faithfulness, it, it's not a common or, or normal thing like you think it, you know, it probably should be. As people of, of faith, of people of God, I, I think faithfulness is something that we really need to, to work on. But Proverbs 26 says that many claim to have unfailing love, or many claim to have faithfulness, but a faithful person who can find. Daniel was one of those people that you could find, that you could count on. And this is the one that I've been focusing on, that Daniel was faithful to the end, through thick and thin, when it was easy, when it was difficult. And I was thinking about the parable that, that Jesus told. It's in Matthew. It, there's a version of it in, in Luke as well, when, when the master was going away and he divvied up some of his property to servants, and one servant got ten uh, you know, shares, and one got five, and, and one got two, or, or one, <clears throat> and um, something like that. And those, the first two servants, when the master went away, they, they put it all to work. And when the master came back, they had, they had doubled what he had given them. And, and in those comments that the master made to the servant, was well done. Well done. Good and faithful servant. I think when Daniel stepped into the arms of his Savior when he passed away, I think he heard those words. Well done. Good and faithful servant. Now, what would that look like in your life, for you, to hear those words, well done, well done. What would it look like for us as a church to be welcomed by our Savior and to hear those words, well done, Centralia Church, well done. You know, we work really hard. Uh, I like how Paul spells it out in, um, if you can jot this one down, uh, it's, in, it's in Colossians. Paul, Paul was writing to this church here, and, and he was describing uh, his efforts. You know, why, why does he do what he does? Why does Paul uh, work his fingers to the bone? Why does he invest so much time and effort and toil and struggle into sharing the gospel and, and spreading that message and growing the churches that he was charged over? And he says, he is the one we proclaim, Jesus, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom. That's the work that they're doing, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. 
sometimes people ask me, why do you do what you do? And I would say I would I put this phrase in that answer. I want to see us all, I want to hear all of us hear those words, well done. Part, part of hearing those words, well done, good and faithful servant, is, is figuring out how to be fully devoted followers of Jesus. How do we all come to this place so that we may present everyone as fully mature in Christ? To this end, I strenuously contend or struggle or work with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. And we want to live intentionally. We want to live meaningfully in relationship to God. I, I want you to live life, to figure out how to live life in the fullness of Christ. So as a church, and I did a series on this, oh, a couple years back on kind of what, what uh, is the foundation of how we see our mission as a church. And these are things that I talk about in, in all of my uh, welcome classes. And our church exists to help people become fully devoted followers of Jesus, going where He goes, doing what He does. Our mission calls us to love God, to love and serve people, and to make disciples. And we really build our mission on the picture of the gospel that we understand from, from Scripture. Jesus had taken His disciples on a bit of a retreat. Ministry must have gotten tough and difficult. They were all worn out, and so he took them up to a kind of a resort town kind of a place at the base of Mount Hermon, kind of to pull away from, from life, get a little bit of rest and relaxation, you know, fill them with the fresh air. Um, Mount Hermon was snow-capped, or is snow-capped most of the year round, and so the melt-off comes down, and there's flowing rivers, and it's, it's a beautiful place. Jesus brings his disciples up there, and I think they're thinking, wow, this is great. And then Jesus asks them a question. Yeah, Jesus is good at that, right? He gets you off <laughs> into a quiet place, and he says, hey, Dave. He says to his disciples, <clears throat> hey, What's the word on the street? Who do people say I am? And, you know, that's an easy question. For the, you know, they, they hear things. They've been out on the street doing ministry. And, well, you know, some say you're a prophet. Some say you're, you know, Elijah. Some say you're like John the Baptist to come back. And that's, you know, there's lots of answers that we could come up with, with that, to that question, Right? Who do, who do people think Jesus is? Well, he, you know, he was, he was a prophet. Well, he was a good guy. He loved people. We could come up with all sorts of answers to that question. Who do people say Jesus is? Well, then, you know, this is a retreat. So this is kind of like cheating on a retreat, Jesus. He asked them a question. He turns that around and he says, okay. 
That's good. That's what they say. Who do you say I am? Who do, who do you say I am? Hmm. May have been a moment a little quieter than that one amongst those disciples. Peter, he's always good to break the silence. And he says, you are the Messiah, son of the living God. Now, where did he get that? And if you read, it's in Matthew chapter 16. Jesus blesses him. Blessed are you, Simon, for you did not get that answer from flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And this is the place where Jesus changes his name from Simon to Peter. He says, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And he said something about giving him the keys to the kingdom of heaven. But the other the disciples were probably a little jealous on that. What? He gets the keys? That's Peter, Jesus. You know better than that. I love the language here. Jesus uses the word rock twice. Once is when he changes Peter's name. He says, you are Petros. Petros. It's the masculine form of the word that we translate as rock. And in the Greek, Petros is a rock like a, a stone. You can pick it up. You can chuck it around. You can carry it. But then he says, in the next sentence, on this rock... I will build my church. And so many people think, well, on Peter, Jesus is going to build his church. But Jesus uses a different form of the word for rock. He uses the feminine form, Petra. On this Petra, I will build my church. Well, you might say, well, big deal, masculine, feminine. You're right, it's still the same word, rock. But we're talking about a different classification of rock here. Petros, a rock you can pick up, move, stone. Petra is more like the foundational bedrock. You're not picking this stone up and moving it at all. It is the foundation. It is the base on which everything else is built. And what Jesus has just said is, Peter, you are rock. You are a, a, you're a, you are a pebble, a stone. You are part of this other, more foundational Petra, bedrock. And Jesus is talking about the confession that Peter just made. You are Christ, the Messiah, son of the living God. That's the bedrock. That's the foundation. That's the Petra that Jesus is talking about. And, and he has now told Peter, you are part of that. I need you to take that, the stone of who you are, and I need you to put it on the foundation of the Petra. And later on in Peter's ministry, 
when he is writing in 1 Peter, I think it's in chapter 2, he says that all of us, when we make that profession of faith that you are Christ, Son of the living God, you are Messiah, the Savior, when we make that confession, we become stones like Peter that Jesus takes and uses to build his church. And so when we think about our mission First and foremost, we build it on the gospel of Jesus, the foundational bedrock, the Petra that Jesus is talking about. You've heard me share these verses. Uh, I'd ask you to turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Over the last several years at our annual meeting and when we gather for district assembly in the spring and I get to bring a report on behalf of this church to all of the churches, uh, I have shared uh, these three verses. In fact, we printed them and they are on a, they're on a nice artistic kind of a uh, painting in the, in the library because I think these verses help shape and form how we view our mission as a church. And they read chapter 10, verse 23, let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm. For God can be trusted to keep His promise. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And let us not neglect meeting together, as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. As I see it, and as I've unpacked it before, I think that there are five thing, themes that show up uh, over and over in the Scriptures as essential parts of the gospel message, and they're evident in our passage. And in your core guide today, each of the daily devotions focuses on a different pillar of the gospel. So as you're going through your devotions this week, you can kind of think back to, to these things and focus on each of these different pillars. Um, the first one is that we desire to be a people who worship God passionately in public and in private. And in the Hebrews passage, we see that in, in verse 25, it says, don't neglect meeting together. It's important to come together and motivate one another and to encourage each other's hearts and to sing praises and, and join our voices together to remind us that it's, we're not in it alone, but we're in it with a whole group of people who are called out ones to serve our Lord. Backing up in, in verse 22 of it says, let us go into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting Him. And I remember about how Paul talks about worship when, when he says, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. You know, so worship of God isn't what happens when we're in this room, you know, between 1030 and noon each and every Sunday. Worship happens before we get here. Worship happens as we leave this place. Worship is anything that 
um, lifts God and reminds us of, of His presence around us. It's, it's seeing God in every place that we travel. It's seeing God in the presence of Jesus in every room that we're in, in every person that we interact with. When you go out and you're looking for Jesus out in the world and you can identify those moments, that is, in fact, a moment of worship. We purpose to be generous in our hospitality and give generously of our time and energy and money for God's kingdom work. Hebrews writes it as, we provoke one another to love and good deeds. Hospitality is creating a space that is ready for other people to enter. So when we have people over to our home, normally the routine is, you know, you kind of tidy up a little bit and, you know, you move stuff off the couch so that there's places for people to sit. We do the same thing when we look at our facility. Do we have a place that is welcoming to those who aren't here right now. And so we want to focus and we want to pay attention to those things and we want to be generous in our hospitality and we want to be ready so that when God brings people to us that we not only have an open place in our facility, but we have an open place in our heart that's ready to welcome and not just be friendly. Oh, really glad you're here today. It's so nice to see you. You can be a friendly church, but not be a church that's looking to make friends. And I want to challenge us to be both. I want us to be a people who are friendly. I want us to be the friendliest place in town, that people walk in and they notice a generous hospitality, but I don't want that to wear off after, after a couple, two or three times that they're here. I want them to feel like this is a place where they can belong and where there are people who actually want to become their friends. And there's a huge difference. Discipleship is a key component of the gospel. We strive to be connected with one another spiritually so we can grow together as disciples of Jesus. We are to be learning and teaching Hebrews talks about this this as uh, meeting together and encouraging one another, and I think there's a lot of us in here who prefer to be learners. You, You prefer to be a learner? Well, the gospel calls us to be both, a learner and a teacher. That doesn't mean you have to stand up on Sunday morning or any other time during the week and lead a Sunday school class or a core group or something like that. Some of you, God asks you to do those things. Thank you. But everybody, whether you know it or not, when you profess to be a follower of Jesus, when people see you leaving the church, there are some assumptions that are made. Oh, they're a church person. So you teach people with the way that you live, whether you know it or not, whether you're willing to admit it or not. And so it should call us into a way of living that we view ourselves as teaching people what it looks like to be a a Jesus follower. And when Jesus gets inside and infects us, and it starts to change the way that we live, we 
uh, our life example will, will show to other people, and that is a model, and that is a form of teaching. And so, the gospel message calls all of us to be teachers, but it also calls us all to be learners as well, to constantly be absorbed in the Word and in prayer and in fellowship with one another, in core groups and in worship. Those are the ways that we learn and we teach at, at the same time. We seek to be spirit-gifted servants, looking to meet specific human needs in our community. Hebrews talks about it as we motivate one another to acts of love and good works. Serving isn't an, uh, an optional part of your faith. It's not an optional part of the gospel. Serving is an essential. Jesus made this uh, plainly clear when, when His disciples were tempted uh, and tried to take the ministry to um, make themselves feel better, to, you know, rid people around them that were bothering Jesus. Um, when they looked at uh, following Jesus as a, as a ticket to the corner office for positions of power and prestige, Jesus was so quick to redirect their focus and tell them, that's not, that's not what it's all about. What it's all about is serving the people in our presence who have a hard time serving themselves right now. He trains their eyes to look for people in need all around them. You know, James and John, they had their mom come and ask Jesus, hey, when you enter into your kingdom, can my boys sit at your right and your left? And he says, you don't know what you're asking for. I'm not in charge of the seating chart, by the way. My Father in heaven is, is up, up to that. He's got that under control. But can you drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And when the cup was referenced from the pages of Scripture, it often referred to a cup of suffering. And so these boys, you know, their thought is, oh, this is going to land me at the right and the left of Jesus. Wow, we're going to be, you know, like number two and three in all of the kingdom. And so Jesus says, can you drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And they say, oh, yeah, 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 we can no, they can't. The other disciples find out about their request and get upset about it. So they're competing, they're fighting over things that elevate them personally and not help anybody else. And Jesus sits them down and says, okay, we need to go over this yet again. My kingdom is not like the kingdoms of this world. My kingdom turns all of those upside down. And if you're going to be in this one, you got to look for people in your windshield, in your view, who need help. And you are the one who's tasked with the responsibility of, of helping those people, of serving them. We want to be credible Christian witnesses to our family, to our friends, to our neighbors, to people who have names is what we're trying to say. Not just those who don't know Jesus yet. We all know people who don't know Jesus. Put a name on a card and start praying for him. 
Jesus wants us to be witnesses to people who we know, who are in our circle of influence, who we can, you know, that whole learning and teaching thing, who when we, when we are modeling what it looks like to follow Jesus, they ask questions like, why, do you, why did you, you should have been angry about that. You should have fought back. You should have argued back. You should have pushed harder. And you can say, you know what? That's, maybe an old me would have done that. But I know this Jesus person, and he would say I should do something different. Have you ever heard of him? Jesus wants us to be witnesses. Hebrews talks about it as it starts off in... In verse 23, it says, let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm. You could easily uh, turn that hope we affirm uh, around and say the confession of our hope. Let us hold tightly without wavering to the confession of our hope. In other words, we confess it out loud. We share it. We talk about it. We speak it out loud to other people. And again, this isn't something that is a optional part of faith. This is one of those obligations. I was told at one point that I was not allowed to use that word from this pulpit anymore, but I, uh, I'm going to be resolute in my convictions and say we're obligated. Paul talks about it this way, Romans chapter 1, verse 14. He talks about the gospel message in a financial term, like when you have a debt, you are obligated to pay your debt. You owe somebody money. Paul says that every, get this, Paul says that every Christian is under an obligation. Every Christian owes the gospel to every non-Christian. And when you owe something, what do you do? You pay up. Every Christian owes the gospel to every person who's not in possession of it yet. That's pretty strong language that Brother Paul uses there. So it's not an optional part. It's something that's mandatory. When those five things, those are th- that's what the gospel calls for. That's what we get over and over and over in our scriptures. And when Jesus says to obey his way of life, to obey his teaching, we can't just pick and choose the parts that are convenient and easy in the moment. We have to choose all of it. It's a yes or no. It's an all or none. He doesn't talk about any kind of a a middle ground. And so when, when we think as a leadership team, as you, when your staff gets together and, and the board gets together and we talk about these things, we have to build everything we do on all five of these things, not just one or two that make it easy, but we have to look at when, when we evaluate ministries and, and what we do, we test all of them up against these things. How does it measure up? to how we perceive our mission in this world and in this community right now. And as we pursue this mission, I'm convinced that um, 
that we will grow deeper in our faith and that we will move forward together in Christ-likeness. I'm, I'm convinced that we will be drawn closer together as a body, that we, we would have... Uh, um, our community would grow stronger. There would be a, a, a stronger sense of unity within us. And, and I'm convinced that um, when those two things come together, when we're growing in Christ-likeness and we're coming together in community, that that will, that will compel us, that will propel us outward to serve the people uh, who are around us in Centralia and Chehalis and Lewis County and, and beyond. And I told you a couple weeks ago that, that I wanted to share a, a couple dreams and, and visions that we have been talking about over these last uh, weeks and months. Um, and so I want to give you three of them real quick. And these are just kind of, you know, just scratch the surface um, kinds of things. But the, the, there's three things I wanna, that I want to mention. One is that we have, um, we have a lot of people that walk through our doors on a daily basis that, that need help. If you sit and you watch the traffic, foot traffic, bike traffic, up and down First Street, it's incredible how many people pass by this facility on a daily basis. All of them have some sort of need. Many of them come in and ask, some of whom we can help. I think that we can help more. And I think that we can utilize our benevolence in a way that may help us be a little bit more effective in meeting need and being in relationship with people. Some, sometimes we're called and sometimes in the moment it, it is the right thing to do to fill a gas tank or buy a meal or, or get some food or provide shelter or something like that. But oftentimes those are fleeting and passing moments where our, um, our part in the gospel in that is just being Jesus to that person in the moment. And those are right and good, and we will continue to do that. But to be effective as a community player, as somebody who is really interested in uh, changing the, the, what's going on around us, there's a lot of poverty in our area. Uh, one thing that, that we were we participated in, Lisa and I, uh, at another church that we served, is we, we helped launch a non-food pantry. Uh, food stamps only cover a certain number of things, and they leave out a whole um, segment of items like uh, toilet paper and paper towels and dish soap and laundry detergent and, you know, some other hygiene products and things like stuff that adds up pretty quickly on a monthly basis. And, and we launched one of those, you know, several years back, and, and it is still thriving and serving people in the community where it exists. And there's nobody doing anything like that in our county or in our town. And so we've been exploring the idea of what does that look like for us to spearhead that out of, out of this church. And certainly there's a lot of administrative things to, to talk through and to figure out, but we're looking at um, launching something in 2018, early in 2018. And so the, the key things will be bringing a group of, 
of people together to help administrate that and volunteer and, and go out into our community and look for donations for supplies and do some fundraising to help um, maintain on a monthly basis what we can give out to families who come in seeking help. Because it's not a one-time thing. This is something where people come in and they register and, and they come back on a monthly basis. And we're meeting a need. And over time, we get to learn those people's names. And we get to hear their stories. And we get to pray with them. And we get to start journeying through life with them and introduce them to Jesus, to the reasons why we do this. So there's all sorts of benevolence things that we do, and, and we're kind of kicking around names. But the one that's kind of stuck in my mind right now is, is I'd love to call it something like the Grace Place Family Resource Center. And longer term, uh, you know, we have, we have the little house in the parking lot over here that Young Life meets out of there, and we do core groups and things. And many community groups use that facility over there to have meetings and so forth. And then we own uh, four other houses right along this block over here, and we're trying to figure out what do we do with those. What I'd really like to do is the one that's the little white house right next door. I'd like to turn that into the resource center and set that property aside as a place where uh, needs are met. The non-food pantry, there's certainly a whole host of other things that could operate in and, and out of that place. But longer term, that's kind of what we're thinking about. Second thing is um, you're all sitting in a chair, except a couple of you standing in the back. Um, the new chairs in here are the sign of a, a bigger project. We talked about this at our annual meeting, but we're working um, with a team to to do some refreshment, uh, to make our space open and welcoming, more hospitable to people who aren't here yet. And sometimes when you do a uh, facility change or you spend money on your building, sometimes it seems like, well, we're just trying to make ourselves feel better. Um, I think that we need to th think in terms of this missionally. As, you know, we are doing some things that we've needed to do for a while. Uh, change out the de decor, bring it into, you know, the 2017 and 18. Um, make some space in the foyer, bring our, our coffee stand up from downstairs and, and open the space up a little bit so that it's uh, welcoming and there's seating. And uh, I just see this vision of people walking in and just feeling that warmth and the welcomeness, not just in the facility, but in the warmth of the people's hearts. So we're working with a, a designer, and several of you are on a team that's helping think through these things, and, and the chairs were kind of the signal. This is what's getting it all going. And uh, the way that I keep tying it to mission for myself and those with whom I have talked is, you know, each of these chairs... Uh, you know, there's a certain cost per chair. You know, there's the actual physical cost of the chair. Um, but then if you look at the whole project, what it will it take to refresh the sanctuary and do some work out in the foyer? You know, when we figure out, you know, how much that costs, I'm going to divide it. 
by the number of chairs that are in this room. And I'm going to just present it to you. And I want you to think about, would you be willing to buy one chair for you and one chair for somebody who's not here yet? So that we, it's a constant reminder that the things that we do aren't to make ourselves feel better, but the things that we do are intentionally designed to reach out to people and introduce them to Jesus. And the third thing that I just want to uh, mention is we've had a partnership with a church in El Salvador for 15 years, a little longer than that maybe, and we've gone on multiple um, trips down there to help them uh, pursue the mission that they have in, in their community down there. And the last couple times we've gone down, and, and they've found some work for us to do. Um, what we would like to do in the early part of 2018 is send a team of, I don't know, three, four, five people down and sit down with, with their pastor and their leadership and just hear their heart for what they see as their mission over the next five to ten years in their community and have a really good conversation about how our church here can help partner with them to achieve the mission that they have down there and maybe reach out in, into their community so that we can put a calendar of some work and witness projects together to get us uh, out of Lewis County and out into the world that Jesus calls us into. And so we're working on that. And kind of a, something else that has, has bubbled up uh, a thought conversation out of that is a lot of the people that walk up and down First Street, if you were here at our Halloween block party, um, you notice that there's a, a huge Hispanic population that came through our doors. And it's increasing. And I have personally had uh, point after point where God has challenged me, what are you, how are you ministering to these people that I'm bringing to you? And we're working on uh, ways, talking. This is a, you know, just beginning conversations at this point. And what would that look like to reach into that community with the gospel? So those are three things uh, that certainly will uh, bubble out and, and lead to many more. And all of these uh, are tied to mission. They're all 100% tied to the five pillars of the gospel that we talked about. And when we pursue becoming fully devoted followers of Jesus, and when we pursue the mission that God lays out in front of us, I'm convinced that it will do a work in our own lives that will help us all to become mature followers of Jesus so that we're all prepared to go where Jesus goes and do what Jesus does. Are you in? Sort of. Are you in? Yeah. All right. Would you stand with me for prayer? All of these things don't happen without a lot of